Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Forget all about the Ipcress fire. You will forget your name. Harry Palmer. My name is Harry Palmer. My name is Harry Palmer. He's using pain to distract himself. See that there's padding on those straps next time. You want to make it easy for me? No, for me. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Bart. You've done it. You finally programmed a bootleg Bond episode that I enjoyed. Which is hilarious in part because it was not at all my intention. (laughs) (laughs) I actually uh, realized after I came up with this list and I was in the middle of watching them, I was like, damn, these are too good for a bootleg Bond. What am I going to do? Yeah, I think I enjoyed this episode even more than the one that you let me program myself, all my favorites. The theme tonight is anti-Bond movies. These are spy movies that are... Serious. Yeah, they're serious. They were made in the wake of the the Bond craze, but they seem to be making a concerted effort to be more about what spies actually do rather than what James Bond does. Right. If there's women, they are there for... A purpose other than sex. I don't think there was. Oh, actually, no, there's definitely a bunch of sex in one of these movies. Otherwise, these are very much meditating on the horrors of war, spying, the human toll, the mental toll of all of these things. And there is no fun to be had in any of these films, <laughs> which isn't. <laughs> well, no, that's not. Yeah. They're very fun. These movies are actually freaking awesome. This was actually one of the most fun episodes I think we've done for me. I agree. I mean, they they weren't all terrific movies, but they were all interesting. And if there's one thing that real James Bond movies aren't, it's interesting. I mean, they can be fun, but there's nothing, you know, there's nothing to to engage your brain at all with in, in actual James Bond movies. The glory of these movies is the fact that you have a bunch of thinking man's action films. So all of the things that everyone enjoys in in one movie, it's like it plays to all of the sides. There's a bunch of spy action fun. And then there is a bunch of like deep existential terror. And that's pretty much all I want out of a movie at the end of the day. I tend to like the depressing stuff but i also enjoy just turning my mind off and watching a bunch of cars slam into each other so (laughs) this this really just walks the line it's just a very fun very fun episode so i highly recommend and as as with all cinema 60s i recommend that you sit down and watch every single one of these (laughs) movies and then come back and listen to the episode 
But for for this one, I think you really should do that. These movies do really hold together. They're all of a piece. There's not one of these that I would say, well, this this doesn't really fit exactly into our theme, but it's close enough. Well, actually, the first movie that we talk about, it's called Ring of Spies from 1964. Ever since men distrusted each other, which appears on the record as early as the book of Genesis, there have been spies. Is, is the one movie that maybe doesn't quite fit, um, but it definitely belongs. Part of the reason it doesn't fit is it was actually made before the Bond craze, before Dr. No even. It's based on a true story about some spies that were arrested in 1960. The film was produced in 61, but for legal reasons, it wasn't released until 64. So it was made without acknowledging the you know the bond thing at all and uh, it couldn't be more different than james bond it's about these couple very average couple british couple who uh, are spies they work for the british navy and the the main character henry houghton played by bernard lee who would play m in every sean connery bond movie and beyond and most of the Roger Moore ones too. He's a civil servant who's drunk. He he was stationed in uh, in Poland and uh, got sent back to Britain because of his uh, drunken misbehavior. And uh, you know he's kind of disenchanted with with the navy and uh, and his uh, his job and decides to uh, hook up with a a Soviet spy that he knows and get uh, get some of those files that he works with to the spy yeah mainly just for the money and he convinces another person who works in the agency to help him uh he ends up marrying her and uh the two of them are uh sort of get caught up in this spy ring and uh this movie is very procedural the one thing that does connect this movie to the bond films ironically is its obsession with spy gadgetry but uh, as opposed to these like make-believe gadgets that are in the Bond movies, this movie is really interested in the like how 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 you make micro dots or how you know the way that spies send you know they'll record messages and speed them up uh, on tape and then send them the speeded up message so the person who's receiving the message can slow it back down again, and it's very it it just loves all this stuff. And just the whole procedure, the, what the spies do to not be detected. There's this one scene where the, the Soviet spy, who's Canadian. But it, everyone calls American because I guess they don't. I mean, it's funny. It is technically America, you know. But Canadians, I think they don't want to be known as American because of us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, there's this one long sequence where our uh, go-between spy, uh, the one who's who's getting uh Henry and uh, Elizabeth's documents to the uh, to the other unassuming couple uh, who live in you know the suburbs of London and uh, and actually turn these things into tra- transmit this information to the Soviets. Um, they, there's this long sequence where he uh, Gordon Gordon Lonsdale. These people are actually actual humans like they're they uses the names of the actual people who are involved in 
The Portland Spy Ring. This was a real event. Um, And it shows him just going from train to train and like always looking behind him. Like, I think part of that, that sequence is for train spotters who just love seeing all the the British stations (laughs) and and, uh, watching, you know, thinking about, oh, well, he can't get to that stop from this station and. But probably no, they they probably were very factual and and uh, show it exactly how it could have happened. It's wait, can we just say that seeing the tube in in an early '60s film is just delightful? <laughs> he goes to Baker Street Station, love it, love it. That's where Sherlock Holmes lives. Yeah, anyhow, he's he's a fictional character like James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? <laughs> Yeah, and the and then the second half of the film is all just police procedural. It goes into great detail about how the police end up capturing these spies. And there's no like there there are dozens of of police officers involved in this. Like there's no one on the, you know, the side of good, quote unquote, that that you connect with it all because there are just so many of them and you fo- see what each of them are doing. Like there's one person who follows Henry and like makes jots in, in, a, in a ledger, how much he's spending at bars and, and decides, Oh, there's no way on a, on his salary, he could be spending this much at, in the bar, in the, in the pubs. And it just goes into such great detail that I found it pretty fascinating. I mean, it is, it's pretty dull and low budget, honestly but i i think the i really found it fascinating how obsessed with with the details of of spying and detection of spies it is well this is such a square movie but it's also it it, it pretends to be a documentary like very overtly it starts with this like newsreel kind of beginning like very like old style documentary uh looking and sounding with a narrating voice you know like and and here's what happened. And then it like suddenly cuts into this movie as if it's like fooling you that you're watching the actual events. Uh, and yeah, that hardcore detailed procedural stuff is just so, it's so funny because it's just so, Oh, you like James Bond. Do you? Well, you know, here's another international man of mystery, Jesus Christ. Like it wants to like sit there and teach you this lesson, this whole thing. the whole point of this movie, it literally ends with a line about like, there might be a spy in the theater next to you right now. You know, it's like very much just trying to sow paranoia and propaganda, <laughs> <laughs> which is even funnier too, because like, as you said, like the like kind of what does them in is basically not towing the line of class. The fact that, that, Oh, he's on, how could he afford this much booze on that salary? Plus that house, oh, it must be doing something mischievous because <laughs> how dare he, you know, like remove himself from his pre-prescribed uh, class system. Like it, it's so ridiculous, but it's also so inherently. <laughs> it, you're right. It is definitely propagandistic and in, you know, how it's saying, look at these very average people. And they're spies. They're Soviet spies. Can you believe that? But I don't feel like it sows the paranoia, or at least you don't you don't get involved in the paranoia of the situation the way you do in all the rest of these movies that we watch. You don't get involved, but like it's definitely there to judge the crap out of everyone. I think this is doing kind of two interesting things. On one hand, you have a movie that's basically about like if you like James Bond, here's the reality of it. 
So it's already trying to crush your dreams. <laughs> you know, if you like the books, it's trying to crush your dreams on, on this idea that being a spy is in any way romantic. But then it's also doing that by showing you how much of a loser these spies are because, oh, he's like drunk and old and, and always hitting on women who think he's a creep because he is a creep. And then here's this one woman who's a, a 38 year old spinster. Uh oh, you know, like, and, and she's the only one who gets seduced and she's like, oh, no man's ever like pursued me before. And so she manages to marry this dude. You're like, why? Like, it doesn't make any sense. But, you know, so they're already sort of showing you these people as complete losers who want to become someone better and become, have some interesting, uh, aspect of their lives and own a home and you know all these things that then the movie crushes again <laughs> know your place don't how dare you you know so it's just sort of it's like a funny movie like i i like on one hand it's just again it's just the most square thing on on the planet and in drab but like you also get to watch all of these really fun interesting little details like i the you know seeing the tube is really fun seeing london is really fun seeing the way that they um shoot microfilm is awesome <laughs> <laughs> who knew so i don't know like i think it, like part of this kind of rocks you get why they did it you know like there's no point in which you're like well why would they ever do this it's like no they got they got like a bunch of great stuff it's just that like oh it was a fantasy don't think about it ever again let's never speak of this they're going to jail i'm, sh I'm shocked they didn't get killed in real life they just went to jail for 15 years yeah i mean i think Part of it, this this movie kind of plays them as dupes, particularly Elizabeth, who thinks that she's providing secrets to the Americans and not the Soviets. And right, so the she allies. thinks, yeah, she she thinks what she's doing isn't that bad. Like she knows she's doing something wrong. On some level, she understands that it's treason, but she, uh, I mean, the saddest part of the movie that doesn't seem like propaganda at all is when Elizabeth is on the train with Henry and uh, is saying. You know what? We're we're important people. We're doing things that make a difference now. We're not just average. We're just not we're not nobodies anymore. We're we're spies and and uh, regardless of whether what she's doing is right or wrong, she still a lot of it has to do with the fact that she's actually, you know, working working on an international level and and doing things that are you know, will make a huge difference in the world. I don't know. I really like that moment and it doesn't, it keeps it from feeling like strict propaganda. And I also think Bernard Lee does a great job as Henry and, and gives him, it's a well-rounded character. He's not just, you know, not just a cardboard figure that where we're supposed to watch the, the details of how he got involved in this and how, you know, he's, he's sleazy. He's, uh, but he's also sympathetic and you, I, I don't know. There's there's more to it than just a, a simple low budget propaganda anti anti red propaganda movie. There, there I I agree there is more to it, but at the end of the day it also still and, and maybe this is uh, maybe some mix of the filmmakers versus the the producers kind of situation where they know that they have to make this and this is here here's the beats that it has to hit but they spend a little too much time with the characters so that you feel a little even more empathetic than you should have. But I mean, this movie ends with like, be sure to narc on your neighbor. God save the queen. <laughs> you know, like it's very like, you know, it, it, it's, uh, I, I can't not see this as pure prop propaganda, but like, at least it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. It was a nice way to start this episode too. This is other than the, the gadgetry, this is, by far the least bond of any of these movies 
and uh, to sort of start, you know, to to move forward from this and see how it all of these movies sort of combine elements of of the you know old fashioned spy movie like Ring of Spies with you know certain things from the Bond movies, and it's uh, it's you know it's interesting. The next movie is named after me, The Ipcris File, 1965. by Sidney J. Fury. And uh, the actually more importantly is that cinematography is by Otto Heller. This is amazingly shot. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I I I can't even anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh we got Michael Caine. Have we done a Michael Caine movie yet? Maybe we haven't. This is a like... big deal for us guys. Like he's the ultimate '60s British '60s icon, and uh, yeah, I think this is our first. Ah, Michael Caine. I wish I could do as good of his as impersonation as um, Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, but in lieu of that, this we, movie. I, it would be nice if we could just stop this episode for a while and do ten minutes of Michael Caine impersonations. <laughs> <laughs> That's the podcast that I want to do, but uh, I don't know if I. I don't know if I can handle the heat from British people when I totally butcher Michael Caine's <laughs> accent. <laughs> um, so we, this is Harry Palmer, not to be confused with the Harry Hole trilogy. <laughs> Harry Palmer is a British army sergeant who played by Michael Caine. Uh, he gets transferred to the Ministry of Defense after getting kicked out of the army for running what sounds like a gambling ring. So already he is uh, our punk dreamboat, old Harry Palmer. He has this, you know, thick Cockney accent, has really thick glasses (laughs) Uh, that looks stylish. He looks great. He looks very attractive in this movie. And he loves all of the, the most refined things in life, which is, you know, of course, in direct opposite of his accent he loves to cook he loves classical music he dresses really sharply women love him guys want to marry him he gets transferred under a major dalby to help investigate you know transferred away because he was a bad boy for the army to help investigate a series of murders of these like security escorts. You know, it turns out he, he realizes that part of the reason he got transferred to this is because all the other ones have been murdered. And so now it's his turn. So, you know, instead of, uh, I guess, kicking him out of the army or I guess he, he says he's done jail time, I think. But instead of leaving the government, they're like, well, you're sort of semi-disposable. So do this job. But it turns out he's, you know, good at his job and he tracks down the main suspect he makes contact he then as he leaves this library he gets beat up and he kind of uh i like it's so hard (laughs) to describe these movies just because it's just a series of like 
you know, things happening where you're not totally sure what's happening, but eventually it all gets revealed. But so at anyhow, like long story short, the, the main suspect gets arrested. Then he goes to Scotland Yard to interview the guy where it turns out they were like, oh, no, uh, Harry Palmer already was here and, and took him. And so then he realizes, oh, shit, uh, they he tracks him down to this warehouse where he calls in like a major raid. Uh, everyone shows up and it turns out that there's nothing. The warehouse is completely empty and somehow, you know, nobody's there. And the only thing they can find is this one little piece of like recording tape that has the words IPCRESS printed on them. So, so it's basically just about trying to figure out what the words Ipcris means uh, no relation. Also, there's a CIA is involved. They're following him around, and he en- Carrie ends up killing a CIA agent because he doesn't realize he just thinks he's a, a bad guy. Uh, and then that gets revealed, and then another CIA agent's on his tail. So it's kind of Harry taking heat from the British who think that he's wasting their time with this stuff and they don't trust him already. And then the Americans who are following him because they don't trust him. And then, uh, you know, eventually he gets kidnapped by the bad guys who are running this like experimental brainwashing cube. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't want to like totally spoil this because this movie is freaking amazing. Okay. It's amazing on so many levels and we're going to go through all of them. Number one is the fact that I I don't like, I don't know where to begin on in, in telling you how absolutely gorgeous this movie is. There's not a single normal shot in this entire film. Like it, it is just totally amazing. Every single shot is from some sort of like Dutch angle or shot through somebody's arm as it rests on a desk or like shot from above or shot from below or shot from it. Like everything, every shot looks like a door that's been half opened. Yeah, it draws attention to itself, but thematically, I think it makes sense because you shoot from behind things or, you know, through things and it's like, so, so the image is kind of partially obscured and it sort of fits into the whole like, espionage thing where you don't yeah. know the whole story you can't see the whole picture and it it's great it's uh, it just yeah it keeps you off balance and it's also really kind of comical i uh i don't know i want to give credit to otto heller for a lot of these compositions because well, like 100 percent. sydney j fury is a garbage director i mean he did a few <laughs> okay things i guess i mean he did uh you know like lady sings the blues but He's just done so much junk, like straight to video action movies, you know, from the 80s on. And uh, what he did before that is nothing special either. So I don't want to give him very much credit, but it's it's so smart, like and just really witty shots like the Dolby is he's got this sort of very British mustache. And when he's introduced, you see him through this window where one of the bars on the 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 panes of the window cut you cuts off his face in the middle so you can't see his mustache and it's just you know makes you laugh and and there it's just filled with with all sorts of shots like you know really the the well you were going to list off all the great things about this movie so i won't go into how the dialogue is really witty too so maybe that was your next thing well yeah no i mean like please like that like <laughs> There's just everything about this is so well crafted and and I'm I'm with you on the fact that I think that the humor is 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 inherent but it's also one of the great joys of this. I mean like they kind of know at the end of the day that they're telling a slightly silly story that this is 
glorifying spying, but it's also very much about undercutting expectations. And Harry Palmer is a really interesting character. Like with Michael Caine, he kind of reminds me of like the Beatles. There's like this sort of youthful working class slickness about him that you don't really get from Bond at all. Even though I, you know, I guess Bond, like you get when you get his backstory and it gets revealed that he's he's from a working class family and, and an orphan and all of this stuff. But like, you don't know that from the, the Connery movies whatsoever. And so Harry Palmer kind of gives you more to hold on to with that. Like, I just love, I love all the stuff about him. Like there's all these scenes of him cooking that are shot like (laughs) (laughs) wildly. And I just love how much everyone keeps like calling him a gourmet. But like when you see what he's cooking, it's just clear that he doesn't want to just eat awful World War II British food. (laughs) Well, the author of the novel, uh, Len Dayton, was a gourmet like he did oh, yeah. he wrote cooking books yeah <laughs> like in addition to spy novels he wrote I, I he did some kind of regular column in the paper i think that was just you know cooking cooking tips or uh, you know recipes so well it it works so well too because it also kind of puts you on his side and far as far as like there's that great scene when they're in a supermarket which is just fun to see that like what's on the shelves at this supermarket that looks also like american style Oh, yeah, the American style. And yet it looks just like 1960s London, you know, like it's awesome. I, I do think in general, supermarkets are one of like the best snapshots of where a, we are in our culture at any given point in time, no matter who has it. Like it's just such a good time capsule supermarkets. But anyhow, there's this great scene where he's like, you know, there with the uh, Ross. It's his partner. Right. And And then no, his former boss. Oh, his former boss. See, I don't, this is the kind of detail I just do not give a shit about, which is why, like, I cannot get into the, a lot of these spy stuff, but like this, this movie, anyhow, he's walking with this guy and he sits there and, you know, he's like looking at mushrooms or something like canned mushrooms. And he's like, oh, you're a bit of a gourmet, aren't you, Harry? And then he's like, oh, look at this beefaroni. (laughs) It's just this, like, you kind of know that, that Harry already knows what's what. And everyone else is a bit clueless. Everyone else is is more narrow-minded than, than he is. He's always seeing things from like slightly different angles that, that seems to help him out. And it's funny because it's not to tell that through his food choices is such a good back door into this character. It's not like you don't have to have like scenes of him being smart and sitting at his desk and thinking real hard. Like you can just show that and you suddenly know exactly it lights up. Oh yeah. Harry would know like that guy, (laughs) that guy has some insight. Well, he's a lot is made of how insubordinate he is, which is actually one of James Bond's traits too. Like he, he never listens to his boss. Bond is also insubordinate. And I think that's one thing that links the characters, but it is, there is a whole, like just despite being a, a gourmet and and liking the 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 finer things in life, he really is you know one of the people, and I think that makes him a whole lot more appealing than James Bond. I mean, not to mention that Michael Caine at this time was far sexier than Sean Connery, in my opinion. And, oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's also funny because he's Harry Palmer is obsessed with with birds he's he's always you know he's hitting on all the women but rarely has any luck like when we first meet him in this movie he's uh you know he's getting out of bed and he's he's clearly spent the night with somebody you see the two wine glasses he has no idea where she went in the middle of the night so he you know he's definitely that sort of person a uh likes to likes to have a ladies man likes 
likes to have flings, but it is funny how like James Bond, you know, he just looks at a woman and and she's in bed with him. Whereas you know, Harry is uh Harry wines and dines them, okay? Yeah. No, Bond it's just it... grabs them and shags them and, and exactly. Harry... <laughs> <laughs> Harry makes an effort and I appreciate that in a man. Yeah. So much better than the way James Bond does it. I did, did you write down any witty lines? Because I'm totally with you. the The dialogue in this is just it. It's sharp and it's fun, and it doesn't. It doesn't like. It doesn't get too monologue-y the way that some of our next films, which, to be fair, I I do kind of love the monologues in the next couple movies. But like it, it's definitely. I don't know. This whole movie is just having. It's having fun with everything. What Ipcris stands for is ridiculous. <laughs> did you write down what that stands for? Ipcris stands for induction of psychoneurosis by conditioned reflex under stress. Mm-hmm. That that's not what that's not what Ipcris stands for. What kind of <laughs> like he came up with a word or he saw a word and then like decided like oh this should stand for something, and then just couldn't come up with what it could possibly stand for and was like I don't know stress R E S S done. <laughs> There's also a long scene of torture in this movie. Like every James Bond movie, he gets captured by the bad guys and gets tortured a bit. But you never, you know, he's you know he's going to be fine. You never feel the pain that Bond is feeling because he feels no pain. But this, the torture is really grueling. Like they keep him up. They don't let him sleep. And they he's freezing in his cell. And it's just the mental torture that he's going through is really painful to watch and it, it's a very different experience than anything you get in the james bond film and even the way that that harry sort of keeps himself from being brainwashed by causing himself pain is is like it's it's uncomfortable it really is like it's a very different tone from the rest of the movie i think it works the end the resolution of this movie is is kind of unsatisfying i mean just on a plot level it doesn't really make any sense like you've got the two bad guys and he makes them stand under two lamps and how he managed to get these two or you know two people one of whom is a bad guy and he doesn't know which and how he gets them to stand under each lamp and and you know looks really cool it's a good it's a good situation but plot wise it doesn't make any sense and it kind of the movie kind of peters out a bit at the end for me but up to that point it's this movie's terrific well, the, the stuff about the violence is great, too. Like you said, I mean, Harry bleeds. We don't think, do we ever see Bond bleed? Maybe out of the corner of his mouth a little bit, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing about him having to, to feel pain in order to keep himself uh, conscious, it reminded me actually of Altered States, <laughs> <laughs> which is another Ken Russell link between Harry Palmer. But um, yeah, I, I there. It's a really. I, I love. I love the ending of this. I. I don't love as you mentioned the last two minutes of this. The last five minutes of this is a little bit of a cop out in comparison to like the insanity that we see before that happens, which is the cube, which I love. <laughs> the cube is amazing. It's very the sorcerers. Oh my god, it's so good. It's so good, and then the way that like they try to like utilize the cube's powers outside of the cube man like the whole in the whole twist about you know like where he's at and all of this stuff it like all of that is really great so i don't know it's just at the end it's like it's just fun like it doesn't even matter just seeing like, michael kane run around in like spock eyeshadow <laughs> <laughs> for the last like half hour is just it's too awesome he does yeah he's he's got 
He's got fake eyelashes and and uh, eyeshadow on for most of this movie. It seems the Maybe eyelashes it's just are he's... definitely real. Men have the best <laughs> eyelashes on the planet, and it's like one of nature's cruel jokes. Oh, it is seeing seeing a close up of Michael Caine, especially with his glasses off, and and seeing all the makeup he's wearing is a little distracting. But he looked uh, better with the glasses. I think uh, they probably <laughs> had the makeup on because of the glasses, because he needed to make his eyes stand out. Right. But uh, yeah, this movie's great. And the two movies that follow this, uh, Funeral in Berlin and Billion Dollar Brain, also really good. Some people hate the Ken Russell one, Billion Dollar Brain, but I love it. It's it's ridiculous in all the ways that Ken Russell is ridiculous. Um, but yeah, check them all out. This is good stuff. This, this is, is my definitely bond. my, if you like the concept of bond, or you like, if you like current bonds, well, I guess it depends on what you like current bonds for, but this is like a great bond alternative. Like I would much rather have decades of Harry Palmer movies that look like this and <laughs> than bond movies. But, uh, you know, c'est la vie. Uh, so later that same year that, uh, Ipcrest file came out in 1965, uh, we got, uh, the first John le Carré adaptation, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. I love this movie. I've 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 enjoyed it for quite a while. It's and it's the most serious and depressing of uh, any spy movie you could ever. I mean, I think that's true for Lacare in general, but Spy Who Came in from the Cold in particular is really just so downbeat from beginning to end. You know, it's great. I lo- <laughs> I love it. There's none of the humor of of Harry Palmer. There's You've got Richard Burton as Alex Lemus. He's been stationed on uh, at Checkpoint Charlie for for many years, and um, he's in charge of all of the the double the British double agents who are working in East Germany. And uh, when when the movie starts, he's trying to get his last agent out of East Berlin, and he uh, almost almost across the border. Um, his his last agent is shot by this uh, by this awful East German uh, ex Nazi Hans Dieter Munt, and uh, this movie sort of revolves around Lemus trying to sort of get his revenge on Munt for killing all of his agents, but not you know not in a typical Bond way where he like goes goes out with a gun and and tries to you know sh- he shoots down all of Munt's minions and uh and you know and then then finally like throws Munt into a tank of sharks or something it's uh it's all like a lot of um lying and deceit and and uh you know double triple agents trying to fool other people into thinking one thing in order so that they can think the other and it's really complex Alec poses as a like drunk 
ex-spy in order to get the uh, the Soviets, the East Germans, to try and recruit him as a double agent and tell them what he knows about what's going on in the you know in this in the British uh, spy world, and uh, he's successful. He gets a job at. Uh, at this little library because that's all he can get posing as this as this drunk I, this, there's so much to this story that i, I don't awesome. even know how much to go detail to go into but uh, anyway in this fake life that he's leading uh, he works in a library and meets uh, claire bloom nan perry who's a uh just a nice unassuming single woman she's uh I, I feel like her her character isn't quite developed enough. She's got, you know, some communist sympathies. She works, she's in the, the British Communist Party, but she's also like kind of spinsterish. But he, you know, it's also like she's had other lovers. So it's, you know, we don't really get to know a whole lot about her, which is maybe necessary for the plot, but it... Uh... Can I just say that I love the thing that partially demarcates these like anti-bond with the bond film is that all the women are over 30 (laughs) (laughs) yeah claire bloom is a little bit too much you know too too movie star looking for this role i think i think she should be a lot mousier like very good looking (laughs) but still she's uh she works in a library so that means that she's uh that automatically means mousy i mean it's it's lucare so to there's no way to sum up the plot Alec is trying to convince Munt's second-in-command, Fiedler, uh, played by Oscar Werner, um, who is a Jew and hates Munt uh, because Munt hates Jews. And, uh, you know, and, and Munt is just this awful, cruel, sadistic person. And so um, Alec is, you know, posing as this, this double agent and telling Fiedler all of these things that while not coming out and saying that Munt himself is a double agent, you know, suggests to Fiedler, you know, makes him like connect the dots himself to think that Munt is a double agent so that Fiedler will kill Munt uh, for the British Secret Service. And um, for the most part, Lemus is successful. And that so we're watching a lot of this movie is us watching him trying to con Fiedler into thinking that Munt is a is a double agent and uh, you know he ends up in in East Germany and one of the few like sloppy bits of the plot uh, Nan Claire Bloom also ends up in East Germany having to testify in a, in a trial in a tribunal you know so we've got them both Lemus and, and Nan in East Germany and uh, we know that they're good people and they need to get out of there I don't want to spoil too much, and it's also so convoluted that if you haven't seen this movie, there's no way my plot summary could, you know, give you any idea of what actually happens in this movie. But it's it's just so downbeat. It's you know most of this movie is Lemus. You know he's already bitter because he doesn't really have a job anymore because all of his agents that he was running are all dead. He's just pretty fed up with all this spy business but he also doesn't like he's a field man he doesn't want a job behind a desk so he he wants to keep working at this spy business because it's all he knows but it also like the toll that it takes on his soul like the you know all of the the immoral decisions he has to make for the greater good 
just it all just weighs on him and he mopes through the entire movie like you get even the the you know, slightly bright moments with nan where he she uh, is cooking him dinner he lightens up only a little bit and he's still got the weight of the world on his shoulders and and burton does an amazing job in this movie i think he's fantastic it's, it's such a good role for him I, I came into this movie having not seen it and also making zero effort to look up anything about it <laughs> and was totally bowled over by it because I didn't, I you know, from the way that it starts to the way that it ends is such a tone change. And in, in a way, it almost feels like that, that first Ring of Spies movie is how it sort of starts. But then by the end, it's like just such a... It, it has so much more depth and so much more emotion and feeling and such a dramatically different message from what you think it's going to be at the beginning. Like you were saying with Nan, like it starts off with, you know that he doesn't really want to be in it, but he's in it. And then she invites him over and she sort of slowly reveals that she's a communist, but a British communist, you know, an em empathetic uh, and a young student and, you know, naive as it were. The movie makes very clear and the way that he kind of argues with her about like, oh, you believe that junk? Like I, you expect the whole movie to kind of be like that. Like he's sick of being a spy, but he also thinks communists are evil. So he, so he's in it. And then you sort of slowly realize that he actually, he just thinks everyone's evil. Like, you know, <laughs> it's not about communism even. It's just about like the, how horrific it is to be a human. And that's positively, I mean, there's a, I don't want to spoil the ending of this either because it's really it, it it was surprisingly powerful especially if you don't know anything about it going in but there's a great monologue that Richard Burton has which is why you want him in this role I think is that monologue he has in the car with her which is so quotable and so effective and so bitter <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's it's just wild I it's such a smart uh, amazing monologue and and are you gonna do the monologue or are you just gonna sim no i what, what you want me to quote it i mean like i wrote down a couple of it i love i love um he he talks about like you know killing your your enemy and he says basically that he he's at the point where he doesn't want to kill his enemy he has just as much empathy and sympathy for them now because he's he is his enemy he's the same they're all one and the same saying like uh, today he is evil and my friend london needs him they need him so that the great moronic masses you admire so much can sleep soundly in their flea-bitten beds again. They need him for the safety of ordinary crummy people like you and me. <laughs> you know, and he just sort of goes into this, like, you know, what? how big does a cause have to be? You know, like, what? What? how much is the cause worth? Because at a certain point, you're going to have to kill somebody you love. Like, that's it. That's the only way that it can go. Or you have to kill a few million people, which, you know, also, I mean, it's just watching this in in 2022 uh, while we're still in in 3000 deaths a day in America for covid it's just like it, it, you know this sort of thing even feels more relevant in a way even though this isn't about that but it is still a political kind of conversation it's become a political conversation so it's just the whole thing was just really fascinating to to slap me in the face i just didn't think i didn't expect it to go there at all i mean it really is this kind of spy versus spy thing like you were saying i also love how he characterizes spies as people in that speech where he just says they're i mean he's basically saying spies are not james bond they're they're he says they're squalid seedy bastards like me <laughs> yeah bunch of losers who hate themselves and that's why they're spies they had they don't believe in anything and they can do you know any any immoral thing they they want to because they just don't care they hate 
they hate li- their lives. They hate themselves. They, they, uh, they hate everybody. And, and that's, uh, and that's what a spy is. And it's, uh, chef kiss. Mwah. Yeah. And also there's, um, Bernard Lee is, uh, is also in this movie as the grocer that, uh, that, uh, Lemus ends up punching in the face in order to get himself sent to prison. And, uh, and that's in this case, Bernard Lee is a bit of stunt casting. Like he's very well known as M James Bond's boss and to stick him in this little, give him a mustache and stick him in this little role as a grocer is, uh, clearly somebody saying, oh yeah, let's remind people how not James Bond this movie is. And uh, it is, it's, uh, about, well, <laughs> I say this about every movie that we, that we talk about, but it's, uh, it's about as far from Bond as you can get. Well, this, I mean, it's so, it's, it's definitely hating Bond flowing so freely through this movie. (laughs) Like it is like, it's not only as far from Bond as you can get, it's also as as pointedly hateful towards Bond as you can get. (laughs) I also just, I, I really like the aspect about Fiedler being Jewish because there's an interesting, like, you know, he's this sort of revolutionary and and he gets caught up in this communism as as a as a believer and like there's there's like a hint i don't know there, there's a bit of this a, a stereotype in this obviously but there's also this you, you do kind of like him by the end of all of this as he's sitting there spending time with burton he he becomes you know very clearly an, an intellectual and and somebody who is incredibly smart and then when they get to this trial sequence and you see all these other plans start to come undone or you know i, I don't want to you know, you don't, I'm trying not to spoil anything, but um, it, it is kind of like, even though the courtroom stuff I found kind of drab, <laughs> <laughs> it gets like really like court procedural. The way that everything kind of unravels for these characters, I thought was very well laid out and very much you kind of start off with this um, character who is is a bit dipped in in stereotype and then it comes out with a very clear twist to that and the, just saying that there is no jewish conspiracy at work here it becomes very very clear which i think is interesting too in in comparison to another movie we're going to talk about later on but. yeah fiedler does come off as you know probably the most sympathetic character in the movie i mean him and nan but but part of the point is that they actually believe in something like they are communists because they believe in communism and believe in doing what's best for the most people. And uh, Oscar Werner's beard and mustache is uh, in this is very, you know, sort of stereotypically Jewish looking, but it's also like you were saying, he also looks like a revolutionary, you know, sort of like Che Guevara ish or something. And um, he's the enemy. He's the quote unquote enemy. Like, but he, you know, we like him more than the hero in this movie which is really interesting and also very, very Lacare. Everything, the way that everything in this movie twists and twists and twists and, and not in like a, a jump scare kind of way. It's in this very like slow plotting kind of, it keeps turning and it. And you think there's, you know, you've gotten to the end of it and it doesn't ever end kind of way. And it's, it's just very, very intelligent film. Loved it. Yeah. Well, the next movie kind of undermines Bond in yet a different way it almost feels like it's picking apart the concept of a spy film and dissecting it piece by piece like stripping it down to the bare essentials it's almost like it's like like taking a insect and then like plucking each part of its body off and layer of it until it looks like an exploded diagram of an insect 
and then presenting it to you. You make this sound a whole lot more fascinating than I found it. <laughs> it's the Quiller Memorandum. Directed by Michael Anderson, and more importantly, screenplay by Harold Pinter, my boy. Pinter. There's like a sweet Moog soundtrack. At least it sounds like a Moog, some kind of synth soundtrack to this. And it stars George Siegel, R.I.P. George Siegel. An American. An American. Apparently, this book is about a British guy and it's a british movie so you know what it, it works it still fits our theme <laughs> the plot of this movie is a lot it it is a lot more simple than the plots of these other movies in the sense that it's really just about a good guy versus bad guys and like that's it to tell this beat for beat doesn't really do the film any justice because it isn't about the beats it's like 100 percent about the dialogue it, it's not even about the visuals it's about like the casting and the dialogue like that is it like this would have been actually a killer radio play <laughs> in my mind but anyhow it's about quiller this this agent who has been sent to berlin and he goes to the olympia stadium in berlin which is kind of which was cool to see to basically hunt down and track down like a neo-nazi organization that that's been re-emerging re in germany in west west berlin uh so no communists in this movie uh just nazis <laughs> um he meets up with alec guinness who shows up initially and they have this like the whole i mean this just the whole thing is this pinter dialogue where you don't know anyone's emotion or what they're actually saying even though they're all speaking english but like you know it's sort of their their introduction you realize later on in the film was actually was like 100 like it, it becomes clear in the first five minutes but like you, you realize later on it was like oh that's they're saying this dialogue because that's like the spy like lines you know like when they're like the weather sure looks good today and you're like have you tried this brand of cigarette <laughs> yeah the way it's delivered is just so i just thought he was offering him a cigarette. <laughs> there's just something, there's something otherworldly about the whole thing, just because all of the dialogue is like that. But anyhow, so like, you know, he basically tells Quiller, like, you got to track these guys down. And so Quiller kind of spends his time wandering around West Berlin and he's trying to track down these, these Nazi war criminals. And he like, he goes to a bowling alley and he goes to a swimming pool and, you know, they, everyone's kind of unfriendly. It's, it's the Pinter menace 
runs so strongly through this movie. Nothing really happens, and yet it's always just really aggressive. And you have no idea why he's going to any of these places. It's, he just seems to show up at random places around Berlin. Like that's that's part of what's really strange about this movie is you don't <laughs> you don't know what his plan is at all or why he's talking to the people he's talking to. And and he always seems like he's on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> And so eventually, you know, he's like, he's visiting a school and he meets this was one teacher who speaks English fairly well named Inga, who is sent to Berger, who was in another bootleg bond. One of the Matt Helms. Yeah, one of the Matt Helm movies. And uh, he's like, hey, come get a drink with me because he's George Siegel. He's like really charming, attractive guy. Then he realizes that he gets he's being followed and he ends up getting uh, kidnapped and then he wakes up in this weird room that looks like almost like castle like the sort of stately gray room that has one giant portrait of like a sexy lady on the wall (laughs) he ends up getting drugged they like inject a drug into him in order to make him talk and explain because these are the neo-nazis obviously who've kidnapped him and then the it's like this like just full pinter dialogue one sentence that has nothing to do with the response that has nothing to do with the other sentence it's like non sequitur but also like discordant even though there's really barely any sort of drug effect it's just when they start speaking in full pinter you're like yeah that guy's high like (laughs) (laughs) just the thought of it now but when you mentioned the sex the sexy woman portrait on the wall behind uh max von cito in the scene right max von cito yeah um the uh, quiller in this movie uses sex, sexy thoughts to to keep control of his mind in this one, in the same way that yeah. Harry Palmer uses pain in, uh, in Ipcress file. It's just an interesting thing to point out. I don't know what it means. But I, I mean, I think that's a theme that runs through all of these movies is that these spies all have to like just constantly try and stay in control of their own mind and know what their goal is and not get distracted from their goal because... Uh, you know, that could lead, uh, you know, them off into, you know, doing the the wrong thing. And uh, so, yeah, it's, control is very much a subject of all of these movies and, and sort of the, the most basic tenet of being a spy is sort of make sure that you know your own mind and, and don't lose control of it. Well, so the rest of this movie real fast is just basically him he escapes from the Nazis and then he wants to get back to the Nazis and then the Nazis are trying to kill him and then he's trying to kill them and it's just a series of scenes (laughs) sort of like almost becomes abstract in how straightforward it is by the end of this and it has this very like open-ended ending I mean there's there's resolution but this this could have been a jazz anxiety movie except there's no jazz in it you know like it's just really bizarre and i want to know why you didn't like it um is it because it's super boring (laughs) no no um i mean in a lot of ways it was like a bond movie you know quiller is just his whole plan is to just wander around berlin and try and piss off the right people so that he gets captured and finds their their hideout that way which is exactly what james bond does in every movie so in, in that respect it it I think it's the most James Bond like, except there's very little violence. I don't think there there's not a single gun in this movie. I don't think, which is interesting. There's a lot of high kicks. <laughs> yeah, there's punching and and uh, 
and things. Not even that much of that. Well, there's, you know? there's a line of dialogue where they say that the, that they don't want to carry a gun because then the, the bad guys will carry a gun. Exactly. Yeah. They're headlocks and things. That's that's about all you get. And and then one one major explosion at the end. But and it's not you say it's open ended, but there you know exactly what happens. You just don't see it happen, which is weird and, and feels kind of stagey for that reason. It's like Quiller sets it up so that the bad guys are captured, but it all happens off screen. Like Alec Guinness, his boss, Pole, just sort of tells him, oh, yeah. And, and then that, that happened. We got them all. Yeah, and he's like, no, you do the paperwork. And then we just watch him alone in a room. Like, so here's what's so brilliant about this is that it is this Bond movie. But like I was saying, it's like a dissected Bond film. Like the stuff about like sex, it's like everything is there. There, He's just like a very attractive, charming person, you know, dropped into this situation, wandering around. The fact that like all of the beats of Bond are here, but they're not like presented as this neat little package, they're presented very like openly and abstractly. And that's why you have like, you know, the way that he uses sex to keep himself awake, it mirrors Bond. Like this is all parts that are in Bond, but we're looking at them at a slightly different angle and like not in the right order and not the way that like a human would look at it if they were empathetically looking at it. It's the way that a scientist is looking at something under a microscope as he's being interrogated, he's being asked, what is it like to be so sexually attractive, Quiller? <laughs> <laughs> There's this knowingness and this like overt self-consciousness about everything that happens in this. It's like, it really, you're just like looking at like, an, uh, like a bunch of aliens making a Bond movie. <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of how it is. And that's what's so good about it. It's just like the way that the romance like barely works, the scene where she, you know, he's like, you wait in this car and I'm going to get these neo-Nazis. And like, I never trust this lady throughout yeah. the entire movie because she's like so German. And yeah, she's got this utopian vision of the world that's eerily like yeah. national socialism. <laughs> and you're <Yeah>. like, oh. <laughs> right. He's like, because initially he, you know, when he interviews her, he's like, you know, I heard about these neo-Nazis, you know, about those guys. And she's like, oh, yes, I know very well about those guys, but doesn't say anything like you know, oh, they're bad, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or why would you want to know about that? She's like, oh, yes, they have many an idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a part of the, the basis of most spy movies is you don't know who to trust. But a lot of the fun is saying, oh, this person who I thought was a good guy is a bad guy. It, this movie, and actually one of the things that I like most about it is that from, you know, from the first scene, like we know we can trust Quiller. George Siegel is a good guy. No, no doubt about that. But there's not a single person that gets presented in a way that makes you want to trust them. Even, you know, Al Guinness, his boss, you're not sure you can trust him. Like none of these Even people. Even Quiller is so antagonistic towards him. Yeah. I actually think it was really smart for, I don't know if it was Pinter's choice to change the British agent to um, an American agent, but it really works for this in that he's such an outsider. And like all all the British people in this movie are so arch and they, they sort of, you know, cold and unfeeling and which makes them all really untrustworthy. And he's not like, he doesn't fit in their in their club really. Like he, he's, you know, he's not one of them. And I think that's part of what, you know, keeps the paranoia going in this movie is that he's such an outsider and, and nobody seems trustworthy and everyone's a Nazi in this movie. Yeah. Even the, even the Nazi hunters are, are fascists in their own way except for Quiller. And I love that about it. 
And there, and then at the same time, you get these unselfconscious action parts, like the whole ending where he's running from these Nazis that are very clearly following him. It reads like a fever dream. It's like these guys that are just coming out of every corner of the screen to stand there and like just look menacingly at him. And then he has to go back to his hotel room, which has been totally trashed. Suddenly this whole world gets turned upside down and he can't function. He's like, you know, being hunted from every single angle. There's this long scene of him trying to escape this hotel or trying to, <laughs> I love, he like, he goes up, he tries to leave on a, on a subway at first and he like runs all the way up the stairs. Any New Yorker too is going to really feel this. <laughs> I'm presuming people in Berlin would also understand, but he runs all the way up the stairs just to get to the train. He jumps across the tracks and then runs all the way downstairs because it's like above ground train. And he gets out and he's like, phew, I got them off my tail. And then they're just standing there and he's like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) You know, anyone who's missed a train and had to run up those stairs, that shit sucks. And then he's like in the hotel and he's going out. He tries to get to the garage and steal a car. And then he's like, wait a minute, there's probably a bomb. He has to defuse the bomb. I mean, like, like there's all of this sort of procedural aspects of that too, in a way. Like you see this like minute by minute and there, it doesn't add up to anything other than action. And now it's the action portion. <laughs> yeah. And the way that the people who are after him keep showing up in, in so many numbers, like they're just more and more and more of them. You really get the sense like all of Berlin is a bunch of neo-Nazis. <laughs> like the, the neo-Nazi group that he's after is really the entire city, like every German, which is fun. <laughs> Everybody's is the fun. enemy in, 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 in this movie. But it does. It's still pretty dopey and and bondish and that's why i can't i can't give it a, a full recommendation but i like that's it. why i like the dopiness of it like that's part of it you know again because it, it's taking the gravity of pinter and applying it to something as dopey as a bond ripoff and i just love that about <laughs> it. it's just so strange like it feels very much like ah, i needed the money kind of <laughs> kind of a pinter project but i don't know i just there's so much inexplicable tension in this that absolutely delighted me thrilled and delighted me and th- that ending that's just literally like well uh we we got them all all right bye <laughs> <laughs> love it i love it well the next movie from 1967 is the deadly affair our second jean le carré adaptation <laughs> actually a prequel to the spy who came in from the cold i don't think i knew that going into this i hadn't seen it before i think i knew that james mason was playing george smiley just under a different name um he's his character's name is charles dobbs in this but he's playing smiley i think paramount had the uh, the rights to the character the le Carre character names like smiley and uh hans dieter mund um so uh so they couldn't use him in the deadly affair but this was actually based on john le Carre's first novel call for the dead focusing on smiley who uh, is named charles dobbs in this james mason and um he play who plays a minor role in a minor but important role in the spy who came in from the cold and he's uh he's central to a lot of the le Carre novels too al guinness 
plays him in some famous TV adaptations. Gary Oldman in the in the recent Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. But uh, yeah, in this, he's the central character and has to interview this foreign office politician who has been, uh, you know, in a poison pen letter, has been accused of being a communist. You know, it's revealed that he used to be a communist. Dobbs is obligated to interview him just to, you know, check him out, make sure he's not a bad guy. And this guy, Fennin, does a good job convincing him, saying, yeah, I was idealistic and I still sort of believe in the same things, but I realize that communism is not the way to do it now. And uh, Dobbs is like, okay, this guy's fine. The next day he finds out that Fennin has killed himself and written a letter that says, uh, my career is ruined. I've been accused of being a communist. And so Dobbs is like, Wow, I don't understand. He he seemed fine. I the I cleared him, and and this shouldn't have happened. I I I don't think that uh, I don't think this was suicide. So he investigates this um, this incident to uh, to try and figure out what really happened, you know. And and he's investigating this murder partially because his boss, who's uh, you know one of these sort of typically uh, nasty. Uh, control type people and British Secret Service uh, is uh, blaming him for Fennin's death. Yeah, so he goes and, and talks to uh, Simone Signore, who is Fennin's widow. She also blames him and says, this is your fault. If you had not investigated him, my husband would still be alive. But as as this is a Lacare story, nothing is what it seems. None of these people are... are uh, who they say they are. And uh, the other part of this story, which is given kind of a short shrift, uh, is the fact that uh, Dobbs's wife, Anne, played by Harriet Anderson, the the Bergman star, is um, she's a nymphomaniac, always sleeping around, and he's kind of accepted that she loves him, but can't uh, stay out of bed with other guys. And, and she's, you know, it turns out that She's sleeping with an old friend of his, an old army buddy, somebody that he trained, uh, Dieter Frey, played by Maximilian Schell. He's an Austrian. And uh, so there's this this whole kind of setup here that that isn't, it's sort of played for melodrama. And I think the worst parts of this movie are when James Mason is trying to deal with with Harriet Anderson's unfaithfulness. And it he it just, it gets... It goes for the melodrama and in this like serious spy movie, I don't think it really fits at all. And it's also such, you know, it also is given such little time, this whole, this whole nymphomania as of his wife aspect that, uh, that I don't know, it all just feels like plot set up anyway. So why, why bother trying to tune us into, to Dobbs's anguish over this situation? But, uh, yeah, but there are fun parts of this movie where he's he sort of teams up with Harry Andrews, who's Mendel. He's an you know, almost retired police captain who's a bit narcoleptic, um, and uh, his uh, his second in command, I guess, uh, Bill Appleby, who's another actually Lacare character, Peter Gwillem. I'm not sure why he needed to be renamed for this movie because that character wasn't in spy who came in from the cold but it's the you know peter Gwillem is the other main character in in all the Le Carre books played by benedict cumberbatch in the recent 
Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. But uh, yeah, watching Dobbs and Mendel and Appleby sort of uh, go around London trying to figure things out is they're they're a fun little team. You know, they track down Roy Kinnear, who was letting an assassin borrow his car, and and Roy Kinnear is uh, sort of doing his his regular uh, you know really fun comic relief bit he's actually a bigamist his uh, he's got two wives and he's proud of it so there's a lot of <laughs> yeah there's a whole weird you know sexual perversion thing going on in this movie um that i'm i'm not sure i understand why it's there but it does add some intrigue to it this is a sexual perversion movie with a spy movie on the side. I'm completely <laughs> on the opposite side of the coin than you. It's an inverted bond because of, of Le Carre, so it's it's that. But it's also an inverted... I mean, it's a neo-noir is really what this is doing. What you have here is that it, you're subverting Bond's womanizing by having a, a man who's emotionally wounded by a promiscuous woman and then having these twists on on these two, two femme fatales one of which is his wife, Anne. And then you have Elsa, who's Simone Signore, the, the wife of the man who kills himself and ends up being a much more deadly force than you think that she is because she, you think she's the grieving widow who's already a, a totally total depressive because she was in the Holocaust and now is, you know, and then, then moved to to england and and you know they were like oh she was she was never right after that or something it's like really kind of <laughs> kind of messed up but i mean like this whole thing is is about it's about this power struggle bond mr mr womanizer himself the guy that makes womanizing look cool and fun and hip being on the other side of that and and being totally destroyed by it to the point where he's going out of his way with such an open heart to to stop his friend Dieter, who was his old World War II colleague, who then ends up, you know, Anne sort of leaves him for for Dieter halfway through, and he comes comes to Dieter and he says, "I don't want you to be hurt," and she can really wound. <laughs> Watch out for this for my my wife. He's intensely jealous too. You find this entire time that he's sitting there absolutely in anguish. Like they they have this open relationship. He compares her her promiscuity to an addiction. And, and like, so on one hand, he's in this complete and total anguish, having to know that his wife is out there having sex with every other man but him. But then he also like has a straight up uh, quote where he says, like, the unaddicted shouldn't blame the addicted. I'm just relieved she's not like drinking herself to death or doing drugs. And it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> You know, on one hand, he's like suffering personally. On the other hand, he's he wants her to be happy and he wants to keep her. And so he thinks by allowing her to do this, that'll that'll be the way to, to hold on to her. And it doesn't. He loses her. And then plus, you know, and she's like a total psycho. She's like an actual psycho. She's like a most uh, really horrible person. She claims she can't feel love. And then, you know, of course, when Dieter shows up, who's much younger and more attractive. Uh, talk about age gap, by the way. Uh there's like about like 30 years between these two, or at least visually, that's what it looks like. She tells Dieter that she loves him, but she, after all this time married to Mason, she won't tell him. I mean, it's like, it, it's just the cruelty of it. And so it's interesting to sort of see this, this character who he gives openly and naively for his love and he, and he gets spit in the face with acid and for his job, it's the opposite. He thinks, and there's even, there's like a straight up line where he says this, he's like, you know, I thought that like, if I was tough on, uh, you know, at my job, it would, 
you know, help save lives. And instead the opposite happens. Every time he he thinks like, well, maybe I'll be tough on this guy. It, it, it bites him in the ass. Every time he's soft on someone, it bites him in the ass. So it's just like a lose-lose situation in every single aspect of his life. And so like, I think that's really the main point of this romance and why it's so prominent. You know, he can't win. It's like the same thing, like the spy that came in from the cold of, of just like, you know, this is, it's the anti-bond. Like he, he, there's nothing about this that's fun or sexy or cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's true. Um, what's interesting is that this adaptation was, uh, was done by Paul Dean, who also adapted Spy Who Came In From The Cold and before that Goldfinger. It's interesting that there's this one screenwriter who had his finger in three. I mean, I guess there are a lot of similarities between the spy who came in from the cold and the deadly affair. I think spy who came in from the cold is a lot smarter and uh, a much better movie. Uh, probably has to do with the source material more than anything, which is probably why Paul Dean couldn't get this one to hold together quite as well, because not having read either, I have to make that assumption. Um, but Goldfinger, I mean, is the movie that turned James Bond into a cartoon character. So knowing that he was involved in, in that adaptation as well is, is interesting to, to think about because there really is no comparison between something like Goldfinger and this movie. Well, the dialogue in this movie is so amazing. Like this was the one too where I kept writing down lines because they were just so, they were so succinct and, and cutting. There, you know, the, the, all of the monologues from the spy that came in from the cold gets like boiled down even more into much more snappy dialogue in this. Like there's not so much of the like stopping the movie to, to tell you something really poignant, but it, it like comes at you so fast and so continually. I mean, like I love that scene where he goes to meet Elsa right after her husband kills himself and there's still like blood on the floor. She doesn't even want to clean it. And he's like coming at her and saying sympathetically, like, oh, my God, how how could this have happened? Like you said, like, you seemed really OK. Like, I didn't you know, I thought we we were doing fine. And she just like spits on his face because, quote, you have no place among real people. You dropped a bomb from the sky. Don't come down here and look at the blood just to look at the blood and, and hear the screaming. I mean, like she's like, you're the man. <laughs> <laughs> dude like you are the man like how dare you you ruined my entire life and and who you are to to what like sit there and be like oh, i'm so sorry this happened to you you dropped the bomb like what do you want like again it's just like there's so much within this movie that is like continually coming for james bond style storytelling and, and character and and it's just so smart i wasn't particularly fond of this one i i thought sydney lumet uh who directed it is uh, kind of over directed it. I mean, not just, you know, having James Mason over remote in, in some of the melodramatic scenes, but even like there's a lot of unmotivated camera movement and there's a lot of just, you know, whereas Ipcris file is really stylish and all the camera angles look really cool. It seems like Lumet is saying, Oh, I want to make a really, I want to impress people with how this movie looks, but it doesn't, it doesn't quite seem appropriate. I th a lot has been made of how um, the DP, Freddie Young, who's, you know, the most famous British cinematographer, he did Lawrence of Arabia and all the David Lean movies, Dr. Zhivago. This is the first movie that used fogging where you expose the film to light before shooting with it, just a little bit of light in order so everything is just sort of grayed out. 
I mean, it works for this movie. It and it feels very British for that reason because everything is, you know, just totally grayed out. And it seems it like reminded me of of Blow Up in in how gray everything looked. Except there are a lot of colors in Blow Up, and you get a lot more daylight. This movie's set mostly at night, and even in the daytime, everything seems all fogged over. But uh, I don't know. It, it it felt the least British of any of these movies to me, and I think part of that is the like Quincy Jones music is the funkiest soundtrack (laughs) you see like this all ties back into the sex aspect of this though which i think is really what the heart of it is and like what it's really attacking is like it's showing you not only just like the the various ways that like people can live in a lot of ways it also is just sort of you know it's attacking this core conservative family value kind of thing and the soundtrack is like the main it's like the most overt version of that because it's like this funky sex soundtrack (laughs) for like what is kind of like a, a drab spy film but then there's all this wacky well, it's not, I mean, it's not wacky, but like it is just like it's wacky for the 60s kind of like sex politics. Like there's just so much happening at all levels and all sides and everyone's just sleeping with everyone. And, you know, sex is just it, it really is like the the main focal point of all of this and also like the corrupting point and like the the, the most emotionally painful point. It's like not even about what people believe in it's just like who they're they're you know giving their hearts to (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i wish uh, maybe if i'd gone into it looking less for a spy movie and more for a you know sex perversion movie i would have enjoyed it more (laughs) (laughs) but it's all right it's 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 definitely uh far more interesting than your average bond movie and that's that's what we're going for here I will say, though, I have to bring up, I think that this character, Elsa Fennin, who, again, like Simone um, Signore does a really wonderful job with, she really gives her this great gravity to everything that she says. Like, you feel all of the intensity. I mean, there's, you know, her character is someone who survives the Holocaust, and you, you feel that through her acting. You know, she has these great lines about the fact that everything she sees is through this lens of, well, I've had nothing. <laughs> I come from nothing. And so at this point, like there's very little that can really shock me anymore. But I think in comparison to the spy that came in from the cold to the Jewish character in that, I don't know that she really rises above stereotypes. And I don't know who's if this was in the book or or if this is just in the screenplay. But I, I thought that she was kind of, you know, the fact that she's this foreign Jew, you know, with her accent. And she's emotionally damaged because of the Holocaust, they say. And then, of course, she has these, like, you know, there's the one thing I'll spoil is that, like, you know, at least they're investigating her for treasonous ties. So, you know, that to me just only reads like a stereotype, especially for a British movie. 100%, you know, this idea that Jews aren't British, they're foreign or whatever, like that that they have no nationalism and that, that, that they are treasonous. It doesn't really so I, I think that kind of didn't work for me but she does give the character does feel real you know she she is she's empathetic for sure and maybe that's about as far as they could get with this you know with what what they have to work with but um i don't know i thought it was a little <laughs> <laughs> yeah i she's humanized but she's still pretty much a stereotype i thought they could have done a bit more with her character but, you know, I had the most fun when it was just investigating the, the crime. 
the team, the team from the circus trying to figure out what's going on. Like that's, I wanted to get on with the spy business, which is odd because I don't like spy movies or I don't like Bond. (laughs) (laughs) You love corrupt sexual uh, politics and yet you got caught up in the spy movie. Yeah. I just watched this one wrong. I'll have to rewatch it. You gotta, I mean, to be fair, there's like, there's like a bunch of Vulcan neck pinches that happen in this, which are fucking sweet, but. I also, it's cool to think how Blondie, this, uh, you know, foreign assassin who, who, you know, runs the car from Roy Kinnear is Hans Dieter Mundt from, uh, from the spy who came in from the cold, like the whole focus, like the, the awful ex-Nazi who, who's in that one. And, uh, so I mean, it's not spoiling anything to say that he gets killed in the deadly affair, but he's you know miraculously alive in Spy Who Came In From the Cold, the the sequel. But uh, just to uh, connect the two characters and and see like there's you get a whole lot of background on Munt in uh, the Spy Who Came In From the Cold about how he was in Britain doing you know some some bad things there, and they recruited him as a uh, double agent. And you realize that Blondie running around in this movie is doing all the stuff that Munt did before they had recruited him as a double agent. So it's it's fun to tie the movies together that way. And also to think of James Mason as the same character as that uh, you know, m- mustachioed Smiley in Spy Who Came In From The Cold is funny because you get nothing about his character in that movie. This movie is <laughs> there's there's so much explored about the Smiley character in this movie that you would have no idea about seeing this character in uh, in Spy Who Came In From the Cold. So it's fun to watch them in conjunction for that reason. There there is an an anguish that continues through them, but otherwise, yeah, it's totally totally wild to think that this poor dude this. <laughs> <laughs> This is what that poor guy, I mean, like on one hand, you're like, yeah, I guess that's how he got to where he ends up and Spy came in from the cold, but you feel for him. Well, finally, we have a dandy in Aspic. title that is more indicative of the era in which it was made than a dandy in aspic i've always wanted to see this movie because that title has always kind of stuck in my head hell yeah same i'm trying i literally but can't can you think of another <laughs> no. like the only thing i can think of is that there's a tv show out or that was out called god friended me <laughs> I'm like, that's the only thing I can think of. Or maybe like hot tub time machine, something that's like just random words that are strung together that feels kind of internet irreverent. But like, I cannot think of a movie that is more clearly pointing to the era in which it was made than A Dandy in Aspic, which came out in 1968, directed by Anthony Mann, which is final film. It has final film. Died making it. (laughs) We all died making this movie. (laughs) Another Quincy Jones soundtrack, but not nearly as good as the, the previous movie. And 
written the the screenplay and the book were both written by Derek Marlowe, which I thought was kind of interesting. So this is like straight straight from the source. This movie, which I don't know if that that's better or worse. I'll talk about my opinion of this movie later, but I'm not sure that it was terribly successful in this case. <laughs> I'm not either, <laughs> and I really I like this movie a lot. But um, this is a movie about a a double agent, Eberlin who I kept wanting to call Evelyn. I thought they were saying Evelyn at first. Oh my gosh, me too. Just because Lawrence Harvey, who plays this character, has like, when, (laughs) for a movie called A Dandy in Aspic, that's exactly what he sounds like. (laughs) You know, he's, everyone's, oh, Evelyn. And you're like, oh, Evelyn? Yeah, like, yeah, that's probably his name. And he, so he's secretly a KGB agent named Krasnevin. But, um, Everyone, of course, he's on, he's a, a British spy doing Cold War intelligence stuff. Basically, long story short, he gets assigned as a British spy to assassinate Krasnevin. And in the meanwhile, as, as this is happening, he is feeling the heat in general, and he's getting completely burnt out by being a double spy. So he's trying to contact the KGB, and he's saying, like, I want out. Like, I'm done. It's been, a you know, a decade. Uh, I can't do this anymore. I think also that his all of his, you know, either that he's being assigned to kill his friends or he, uh, you know, has and he's, he, you know, his Russian friends and he, it's getting to be too much. And he, and he feels like he's losing control. And so he wants to go back. But of course, the Russians are saying no, because <laughs> you're you're completely well set up. So we want you where you are. And the main thing that really kind of gets him to crack is the fact that he it's assigned to assassinate himself, number one. But then when they say, oh, we have uh, footage of Krasnevin, he actually sees that they have footage of his friend Pavel, who's played by Per Oscarson. So now he's really upset because he like they just had a whole conversation about like, would you kill me? Oh, I wouldn't kill you kind of of conversation. And so, um, you know, he he runs over to tell Pavel, you have to watch out. Turns out Pavel is, you know, can't handle the pressure himself of being this double agent. And and he's uh, using he's like in the about to shoot up heroin. And then Eberlin can't kill him. He just he just can't do it in the in the final moment, even though it seems like the easy, the best time to do it is when your friend is already high and, and out of it. But uh, so he leaves and then he sees a bunch of agents rush in and then he rushes back and then the guy's gone. So he, he thinks the, the Russians got him. And so he ends up being sent to West Berlin again, where he is trying to track down Krasnevin, which is where the British say that he is. Uh, while he's there, he's paired up with this um, British agent named Gaddis, who openly hates him. <laughs> <laughs> And another British agent named Prentice, played by Peter Cook, who is amazing. <laughs> I, hear, I hear you grumbling. And then on top of all of this, we have Mia Farrow, who plays Caroline, who is just just adorable. <laughs> She's just here to be uh, like this, like doesn't totally uninvolved, a beautiful portrait of stupidity. 60s, yep. 60s stupidity and Pierre Cardin dresses and anorexia and uh twiggy style dream dream boat. So that's, that's, that's the movie. It's basically just Lawrence Harvey trying to kill himself, <laughs> <laughs> which I got to say, before we get into this, do you know Lawrence Harvey's real name? Uh, only because you told me after you discovered it. 
Oh my gosh, I did tell you. Oh my god, but this like this like blew my mind. Lawrence Harvey was born in Lithuania and his name was Svi Moshe Skikni. <laughs> or his other name, I guess like that's his Hebrew name was was Svi Moshe. His other name was Larushka Mishka Skikni. <laughs> Which is amazing. I love, I love like my favorite, of course, is is Archibald Alec Leach is my favorite. Cary Grant of uh, Hollywood real names, but that's that's up there, man. I love that. I had no idea you could have a career in Hollywood named Archie Leach. You definitely could not have a career in Hollywood with either of uh, Lawrence <laughs> Harvey's <Moisha>. real names. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking awesome! Though it made me realize I was like, shit. Does Lawrence Harvey have like a real accent? I don't think I've ever heard it. He sounds like a different guy in every single movie, and he does good accents. But like, and especially this one, he's like wild. He's like wildly flamboyant in this film. I've always seen him as super British. Like I never, it never would have occurred to me that he was anything but me neither. British. British. And apparently, he like grew up in South Africa. Anyhow, unrelated to this film. <laughs> what do you hate about this movie? I liked it a lot. I hated most of the characters. Like I thought Lawrence Harvey did a good job. And I thought it was uh, interesting to see this man without a nation who's just sick of being a double agent because he has no home. Like he can't make any connections. He doesn't have a, like he's living in this place that doesn't, you know, that he's not allowed to care about. And it's also fun to watch him go to West Berlin and do nothing for days <laughs> because he can't, you know, he's hunting himself. So he, there's nothing he can do. You know, and they call just, him out on that. Yeah, I, that is. There is a little bit of fun to be had between Gaddis and Eberlin. Like Tom Courtney is, is fun as his uh, his partner who hates him. But it also like it never sets up why he hates him. And there, there's a moment where Eberlin is trying out some new weaponry and he like takes a shot at Gaddis for no particular reason. It's just to sort of set up some enmity between them or something. And like, I, I don't, none of the relationships in this movie are believable in any way. I hated Mia Farrow and didn't know why she was in this movie. She was really obnoxious and she just keeps showing up in these places where she shouldn't be just to like oh there's there's a romantic interest in this movie i i forgot here and here she is and the you know just happens to be at whatever location uh he is in at that moment you know he's he's in west berlin trying to get to east berlin and so is she and and uh you know so you think oh is she is she somehow involved in this espionage plot but they make her so unintelligent that there's no way she could be wait like mia farrow when she shows up and like gets naked in his bed immediately and she, and she says i'm an existentialist and he says oh. i think you mean exhibitionist oh man <laughs> and then that they made have me sex. so upset <laughs> <laughs> that isn't even a good dad joke it's not it's terrible peter cook you say you're entertained shows up and he's a sleazeball. Like he's reading girly magazines and like trying to get every woman he sees into bed. And it's not, it's like, who is this guy? Why is he here? What is, what is the point? What uh, it, no, none of the characters in this made any sense to me. I just sort of liked the idea of this, of this double agent who's assigned to, to assassinate himself. I think there was more to this movie. In that, you know, I think Lawrence Harvey, I thought was really good in this. 
he People was give him shit i think he's i think he's great and i think he his sort of he has this this palpable anger to him that i think he uses and utilizes in general really well and i think it works great in this movie in particular because he's sort of walking the line between being this like you know they keep calling him sexless you know because he's just so focused on work but he's like this snooty emotionally stunted you know, warrior who's sort of desperate for some tenderness. And that's where Mia Farrow kind of really works. Even though I agree with you, she's a complete idiot. And, and it, which is, you know, kind of the, the role that you end up, a lot of women end up in a lot of these, in a lot of 60s films, they're just there to be like beautiful and stupid. Uh, and it's frustrating. And to be fair, Mia Farrow though is like, is ridiculously beautiful. So I mean, at least, at least she's easy on the eyes, but like, it works for this character that he would end up finding, you know, the, this sort of like youthful naivety in her to be something that he's just attracted to because he's this, he, he is this very like Russian character. Like he reminds me very much of this, you know, he's, he's duty bound. He has all these sorts of moral conflicts and, and he has all this personal anguish and he doesn't know what to do with any of it. And he certainly doesn't know how to express himself. And so she ends up being this outlet for him that he otherwise doesn't have. And there, and, and then it, like, you know, of course she's just too, too dumb to realize anything that's happening. And she's also boning Gaddis, we find out. And he has that line about like, you two are, are perfect for each other because you haven't got a past and he hasn't got a future, <laughs> which is stupid. But like it, it also like it works. Like I kind of I, I, I got into all of these characters. Like the Russians are really fun in this movie because the Russians are all very much. It's that kind of like that Russian wit and cruelty all with like within like a, a good wink and a smile and a like shoot you in the back of the head kind of way. So I, I enjoyed this, um, you know, the, the all of the bad guys in this were just really fun. Lionel Stander. Oh, yeah. As, as the main Russian bad guy. Uh, Sobakevich, I don't know, <laughs> but uh, he, uh, you know, he like sits there and and you know is is like trying to do deals with the British, and he says something about this is an old Russian proverb I made up this morning, you know, like he's very like, you know, very like um, irreverent and like sort of joyful in the way that he goes through backstabbing and killing people, and like that's a lot of fun because in, especially in comparison to Lawrence Harvey's like really cold stoicism where he's just desperate to leave and everyone's kind of like smiling at him knowingly, like, no, you, you're never going to leave, like <laughs> get used to it. And he's just totally a humorless uh, person when, when understandably, cause he's been through a lot. And then the British on the other hand are just like complete creeps. They're all either like these upper class twits or they're like Peter Cook, who's just like totally like doesn't give a crap sex about maniac. anything <laughs> sex maniac. It's, it's very bond. I think in that way that it's sort of this, you know, this is really what Bond would be if he was, <laughs> if we were being honest, he would be sitting there looking at Playboy magazines in the middle of a restaurant. Like that's, <laughs> you know, that's basically what Bond is. So I just kind of, I don't know, like I got really into that aspect of it. Like I thought that like Lawrence Harvey, like really manages to keep this whole thing chugging along the stoic, rigid character being forced to to bend around two governments that don't don't leave an inch for him even even to be rigid so it's that i thought that was like just a fun 
concept in general. And so like the rest of it just kind of, I don't know, it just kind of goes, you know, it's like kind of washes over me in that way. I don't have to think about it for too, too long. Yeah. I think this is the, the one of these movies where you really, it doesn't, it doesn't pay to think too much about it. You really just want to kind of tune out and enjoy it for what it is. And I, I had a, you know, I had a fine time watching it. I just thought that it didn't, it didn't work and mostly because the the characters didn't make any sense and the you know the plotting was really sloppy but i think there's a lot there are a lot of sketches these characters i i don't know that they're i mean lawrence harvey's character is is the most fully baked and everyone else is kind of a sketch and yeah you either accept it or you or you don't like you know i don't think you're wrong <laughs> <laughs> like i don't think this is a great film but it's a fun film for me at least i mean and, and there's a bit you know, it's not Ipcris level of camera work, but there are a couple of fun, like I like all the dramatic zooms and I liked uh, a couple of clever shots here and there. And, and, you know, that, that intent like leaves the, the feeling, the intensity of the feeling of paranoia there. So I, I don't know, like I, I enjoyed that much. I mean, my favorite part really is just seeing Berlin. We get a couple of really great shots of seeing like cars go down the street right next to the Berlin wall, which is just so cool to see because that's the actual, that's the Berlin Wall. <laughs> like I've been to Berlin, I've seen the Berlin Wall, but it's not, it's totally different when you're seeing it in action, you know, like in seeing this like massive no man's land in between the city. It's just, it's it's pretty wild. I mean, like we, we get that in some of these other movies, but this one is very much shot from the roof of a house kind of in action. Like there's, there was definitely no soundstage there. I love him just being in that restaurant that he meets Peter Cook in. That's like this like restaurant in the sky. It was really fun and really 60s. It's like glass restaurant. Yeah. A firebird car he drives. It's pleasures are really surfacey. And uh, that's my problem with the Bond movie. So as anti-Bond as this is, as different from a Bond movie as it is, it's it's still hard to enjoy it much more than you do your average Bond film, I guess. But I mean, really, the best part of this movie is the ending, which I also don't want to spoil because I think it was actually pretty clever. Uh, like you kind of see it coming, but I think there's there's enough twists that are that are fun. But they, there's just a really coldly existential end here that I think has more echoes of the spy that came in from the cold than it does Bond. For sure, yeah. It does the Bond playbook, but it I think it there it, it it's having more of a laugh at itself than Bond ever, ever does, even though, you know, and, and I think maybe that's part of what works is that Lawrence Harvey's like lack of humor in the face of a world that's just laughing at him is kind of what was really neat about this for me. Yeah. I don't know. I think there's a, a, a steady decline in this, in these movies as the uh, decade progresses. I think uh, the less seriously that James Bond took itself the less need there was for movies like this that were anti-bond that were shooting holes in the fantasy of that whole bond thing that uh you know if chris and spy who came in from the cold were it's a perfect one-two punch it's like you know here's here's everything that bond is not and they're great movies but then you know there's just you're like and scene yeah those <laughs> those two did the job and the you know there's just less less payoff for for the rest of these anti-bond movies as they progress no come on all right so here's the thing so what what how let's i want us to define what anti-bond actually means with these movies as our as our guide because i mean obviously all of these movies deal with the the fantasy versus the reality 
right? That the reality is cold and pathetic and the fantasy is James Bond. And also this idea of losing control, that you lose much more control than you gain by being a spy. But they're coming at Bond from a, like a slightly different angle enough to keep them all worthwhile of not wiping off the face of the planet. <laughs> so I think like, like, all right, like Ring of Spies, right? It subverts the glamour of being a spy with some real world cold hard facts of you're going to do 15 years in jail. I think that one's just really old fashioned feeling. And it, this is, that's what a spy movie was before James Bond came along. And I think but James Bond was a very popular book series. Yeah, so but it wasn't untouched on the, on the screen anyway. That's okay. what a spy movie was. And, you know, just regular people being sneaky, not, uh, you know, these glamorous agents shooting people. So then Ipcris, what does Ipcris subvert? The character of Bond? Yeah, I mean, every, like, the personality traits are more than anything. You know, he's, you know, he actually woos women and he, yeah, and it's... Uh, he actually, he makes an effort to do things. Yeah. <laughs> Pain, he, he's actually, like, brave. He's... Uh, There's not the, uh, not the location hopping of a Bond movie. It is, le it's less glamorous. Like, his, the, the most glamour he gets is cooking himself a nice meal. Yeah. And then... The spy that came in from the cold subverts the morality of being a spy. Yeah. I mean, James Bond ha has his own morality. Like he knows what's right and what's wrong. He, we never see him. Well, you know, he'll, he'll, his actions will get a, a, a sexy woman that we're sympathetic to killed. And we think, oh, Bond has to make some tough decisions, doesn't he? But there's not like, we don't care that much, but. In Spy Who Came In From The Cold, we we get a lot of like spies having to make really tough decisions and innocence, you know, sometimes they have to get hurt and, you know, the wrong people you have to call your enemy. And uh, when people die, it matters. Yeah. When people die in Bond, they just like, it's like, ah, oh, <laughs> another body to clean up, you know, like they or they just walk away from it. Like death has a real weight uh, in Spy That Came In From The Cold. And there's just real spy work happening in the these movies i mean bond doesn't do anything except well what we see in the quiller memorandum which is just you know piss off the enemy and get captured so that he can defeat them from the inside and quiller subverts the formula because it has all of this this these aspects of bond but they're reassembled in in a in like as if the moma was reassembling a bond movie <laughs> modern art abstract modern art version of bond but with uh, all I, of the beats of Bond. I, I don't think there's enough of that to justify your uh, you saying that. But it's a, but I, you I, said you agree I, it's anti-Bond. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I see where you're coming from, but uh, I think you might be giving people the wrong impression of, of it's not just as how dopey how this I'm movie is. <laughs> but it is the type of spy work that Quiller does is basically the same thing that James Bond does without a gun like he in the moment he'll go he'll pretend to be somebody in the moment he says oh i'm a i'm a reporter doing a, an article on this like real spy work and all the rest of these movies all have to do with these really long term long cons pretending to be somebody for a long time convincing people you know telling these lies over and over so that people think you're somebody different from who you are james bond will walk into a situation pretend to be you know, some some rich businessman and, you know, and continue to use the same name. And, you know, it's only it's a ruse for that one scene. But it's 
but that's it. And that's sort of what George Siegel does in the Quiller Memorandum too, is he'll pretend to be this person, that person, that person um, from scene to scene, but there's no like real deep spying going on at all. The Deadly Affair subverts the sexual mores of Bond yeah, and the women. I didn't pick up on that when I was watching it, but you convinced me that that's true. Even just the, the fact that he is so hurt by promiscuity, I think in itself. I mean, that's such a, I mean, you can't have Bond without that. And, and there's never a point in Bond where the women are like, we really have something, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, but you know that there is a, a wake of, of tears with any, you know, anyone who's going out there. It's like Alfie, right? Like it's the same, the same thing, uh, you know, but with a, a man experiencing it instead of, a, you know, and a woman uh, inflicting it. I think is, is interesting and, and still almost kind of rare because also she's not like, she's not like a, I, I think she's a bit of a psychopath, but she's not like pointedly out there to like manipulatively twist and, and ruin his life. Like she does, she does love him in her way. She just can't give him what he needs and what he wants. So, you know, I think that she felt like a very human person. <laughs> I felt like a human <laughs> character in the same way that Elsa feels like a very, a uh, very humanized version of a of a otherwise you know insidious stereotype. I thought that was those are you know very anti Bond. Yeah, and it's just got the typical Lucare like downbeat, right? Uh, actual spy work as opposed to you know glamorous running around shooting people stuff. And then Dandy, I think it's sub it subverts the sense of government being in the right i think in a way but also i think all of these do that i i think that's true but also i think maybe maybe even more it's just that it subverts the bond formula with humor and Mm. not in a not in a way that it's a satire because it isn't but i think that it it injects much more of a nihilism into bond than they're they're normally than bond ever is like bond gets campy and totally ridiculous after a while and i that's that's my favorite bond but I think that this kind of takes aim at some of the super seriousness of of Bond in its way, while still convert, like still being everything you hate. <laughs> well, the most anti-Bondish thing about Dandy and Aspic, and most of the rest of these, is that here's a character who wants something. Everlyn wants to leave the the double agent business. He wants to go back to Russia, and he can't a simple thing like giving bond some some emotions and a, a reason to you know exist would be would be enough to make those movies a little bit more interesting but they don't have it like james bond is just not anybody you care about or or have any reason to care about why he's doing what he's doing but even though Eberlin is a you know double agent, a Soviet, a communist, a, a, a spy on the wrong side, like he, the movie starts with him assassinating a, a British agent, and you know he's not a good guy. We're not supposed to like what he's doing, but he's a, an interesting character. In spite of ourselves, we want him to succeed and and be happy. The best parts are when he's just in you know, West Berlin doing nothing, uh, you know, spending the days in bed with Mia Farrow. Bond never does that. He's always got some kind of like something he's trying to, you know, weasel his way into. and <laughs> Some other bird to... <laughs> yeah. And just those two things, like trusting that we can care about how a, a human is thinking and feeling is enough to make it totally different from a James Bond movie. 
all of the uh, yeah this i think this is a great little block of films yeah. <laughs> not to pat myself on the back too hard i really didn't like i just sort of assembled this you know there's so many bootleg bond movies that i was just trying to come up with like just buckets to put them in and this was my like british films that are serious bucket and i did really didn't give it a second thought and then it ended up being this like great anti-bond <laughs> like every episode this season is so far my favorite episode i don't know what's happening maybe i'm just like going through something <laughs> <laughs> I, you must have had s something in mind because when i i tried to pick if chris file and uh, spy came in from from the cold for my bond episode you know the the bond ish movies that i actually like and you wouldn't let me you said no we have to save them for this episode. <laughs> the spirit must have been flowing through me. I, I like don't. I have no idea why I told you no. I haven't. I hadn't seen either of the films. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just liked your your serious Bond category and wanted to keep them there. I did love it, but I'm so I'm glad that this happened. Yeah, I just want to conclude by saying that you've earned yourself at least one more bootleg Bond episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.